Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. Hello and you're very welcome to this extra edition of Inside Politics from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Wherever you go these days, you will hear talk of the rise of political populism as represented most obviously by the election of Donald Trump and the British vote to leave the European Union. But what exactly is driving this popular revolt against establishment politics and what are the roots of phenomena such as Brexit? David Goodhart is the author of The Road to Somewhere, The Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics. And he was in Ireland this week to speak at the McGill Summer School in Glen. I talked to him about his analysis of the new dynamics which he believes are driving politics today. David Goodhart, I suppose we should start by, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, The Road to Somewhere, your book, which has received a lot of attention over the last few months for, for reasons which we'll go into. What, what is its overall thesis? Well, it's about the value divide in mainly in British society, but I mean, I think a lot of it applies to to all rich democracies, really. Um, and it's about how um, socio-cultural issues, value-related issues, um, have become so much more important, have, have kind of risen to, 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 to challenge more traditional socio-economic issues, that, you know, where the basic building blocks were social class, left and right, uh, size of the arguments about size of the state and equality and inequality and so on. Um, and our, and um, but it seems pretty clear to me that the the big divides now in our politics are just as much, if not more, to do with with values, with cultural values. Um, and I've um, created this schema in which I talk about um, the people from anywhere who tend to be um, highly educated. They tend to be, they tend to particularly in the UK be mobile because of our. Uh, residential university system and also because of London the, the people particularly upper people with professional careers often end up in, in London for a few years um, so this combination of education and mobility that leads to a kind of generally speaking pretty liberal worldview people value autonomy and openness and can surf social change pretty happily and they can live with social fluidity pretty happily um and um and they tend to also have quite weak attachment to place and quite weak group attachments on the other hand you've got uh, the anywheres by the way are a big we're not just talking here of metropolitan elites you know when i think of an elite i think of you know like three five percent of the population we're talking about a big block of people 20 25 percent of the population and growing on the other hand you have the people I call the somewheres, who tend to be much more, as the word suggests, much more uh, rooted, tend to be less well-educated and tend to value uh, security and familiarity. Uh, and they they do tend to have strong group attachments um, and feel sort of in some ways sort of carry the kind of social norms of the society um, more more heavily than, than the anywheres. Now, and somewheres are 
around half the population in my schema. Um, now that sounds very sort of simplistic and binary, um, but uh, you know, in in this book I've written, uh, there's plenty of light and shade. There are all sorts of different kinds of anywheres. There are more extreme anywheres. The so-called global villages. The people that Theresa May was perhaps referring to when she talked about if you're a citizen of the of the world, you're a citizen of nowhere. Uh, then at the bottom end of the somewheres, you have you know, five, seven percent of the population who are genuine authoritarians and xenophobes. You've also got a big in-betweener group of about 25 percent. Now, this all sounds um, a bit abstract, but the um, I've invented the labels here, but I actually haven't invented these value groups. They really are there in things like the British Social Attitude Survey, a very invaluable source on this kind of thing. Now, the, re the reason this is so interesting at the moment, obviously, and the reason that you're speaking at Glenty's this week, I think it's it's fair to say, is that this is a way of looking at or discussing or analysing the, the rise of what is generally called populism in, in politics in yeah. Western democracies. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, I, I started writing this book actually just before the Brexit, the unexpected Brexit vote, but but I, but it but it sort of fits neatly into my thesis in some ways. I am trying to explain, you know, the new instability uh, in our politics, particularly in the UK and perhaps you might say in the US to the election of Trump. What has led to this uh, instability? And I think what has led to this instability is the over-dominance of anywheres in our politics and our policies and our culture and our economy. You can look across you know, a huge range of political issues and it will be, you know, anywhere priorities and intuitions will tend to be dominant and, and somewhere it's have felt excluded from the political process in many ways in the last, particularly in the last sort of 20, 25 years, during which one might say the kind of the, the so-called double liberalism, the economic liberalism on the one hand, social and cultural liberalism on the other hand have come to completely dominate our politics have dominated all the political parties. Um, I mean, I think this is true to some extent in Ireland as, as well as the UK. Um, and a lot of people have felt excluded from that. Um, uh, one of the reasons why the Brexit vote was not predicted by the pollsters is that I think it was about three million people voted in the referendum last year who hadn't voted in a general election for the preceding four or five um, elections. Um, so... Yes, I mean, I'm trying to understand what what has what has sort of destabilised the system, and I think it is it is anywhere overreach in some way, anywhere over domination, and we need to the task of politics in all our societies is essentially how to how to mitigate this value conflict. I mean, both of these worldviews are completely decent and legitimate, at least in their mainstream forms, um, but they they're just sort of they're in fundamental opposition in certain ways, on particularly on. The, what one might call the socio-cultural issues, security and identity issues, to do with immigration, to do with national identity, to do with the family, to do with um, you know attitudes towards religion um, and so, so on. So in your view, how did all this happen and how do we move? I mean, some people, as you say yourself, and anybody who reads the book will, will see that there's a lot of light and shade and a lot, and a lot of complexity in there. It's not, it's not purely binary. But those who haven't read mm. the book might say, well, it has always been thus to, on one level in that there has always been a privileged, use the word elite or, or use whatever you want. Yeah. There has always been a, a class structure, um, uh, an economic system from which some people benefited rather than others, uh, wealth and power handed down from one generation to another. None of those things are new. No, I think that's a perfectly good point. And I think um, what has happened, the reason why this has become more relevant now is partly the point I've already made about how politics is shifting somewhat from 
socioeconomic to sociocultural themes. Um, and um, at, at the same time, you have seen a huge expansion in the proportion of anywheres in our society. Go back 50 years, 50 or 60 years in Britain, British common sense was kind of somewhere common sense. There were, as you say, there were perhaps five, 10% of the population were anywheres. They've always been disproportionately influential, but they kind of knew their place in the system. Um, and um, they, that there have always, as you said, been, been more highly educated people, perhaps slightly more open-minded, people who've traveled and, and, and people who live more pinched lives, who are often more suspicious of, of strangers and so on. But what we've seen recently, particularly with the rapid expansion of higher education, higher education is a great machine for producing anywheres. And the expansion of higher education now means that we have double the number of anywheres that we had 30 or 40 years ago. We've now got 20, 25% of the population. And, and, there, and, and, and British common sense, at least in the public realm, is now anywhere common sense. And like I say, that has kind of destabilized the system. But, but I think it's also just one other point. I mean, it's, it's also... I mean, I, I, I think I think populism, if that is the right word to describe what's been happening, is is a more of a cultural phenomenon than an economic one. Even though the two are very the two are very bound up together, it's often difficult to disentangle them. But I think what we're talking about here is much more kind of Weber than Marx. It's about the distribution of status and respect and esteem in our society. And and why why can I ask you there, Gregory? and ask you why do you think now are those issues of status and esteem and respect and identity why have they, for want of a of, of a better verb, trumped the older you know class based ones which used to drive, for example, the the kind of the polarity between left and right, mm. between Labour and Conservative in the UK, for example. Well, if, if you think of you think of a working class man in uh, in Britain or indeed in Ireland, you know, thirty or forty years ago. Uh, somebody, uh, you know, someone, someone from Barnsley, um, someone from St. Helens, you know, they came from this group town that was the centre of a great glass making industry. They came from Barnsley. They were the centre of the South Yorkshire coal field. It had a place in British society. They had a, they may not have earned anything. Well, actually the miners did earn a lot by the end, but they, they, they may not have earned as much as, uh, you know, an, an upper middle class professional barrister say, um, but they had a they had a place in the system. They had a respect and esteem. Um, you know, the whole the dignity of labour thing. Uh, the, the family structure would have been more traditional family structure um, that would have uh, given them esteem as a, as a male breadwinner and so on. Um, I, I, and a lot of these things, for, in some cases, for perfectly good reasons. You know, that a lot of family and gender policies have been about making women more autonomous from men, less dependent on men in that way. Um, but there's a, but there are great swathes of our society who have kind of, who have lost, uh, lost a place, lost and, a and, and isn't, isn't that to, at least to some extent also that tied with economics? I mean, I think I've heard you refer previously to, you know, kind of the hourglass model of society yeah. which, which, which yeah. exists now and that, that whole swathe of skilled manufacturing jobs, conveyor belt jobs, highly unionised labour, mostly occupied by men um, yeah. and, and that, that is the, the part of the old economy which has disappeared the, the fastest and the most dramatically. Exactly. Yeah, and, and I do think um, it was those jobs and, we, and perhaps we can over-romanticise them but I think they did have a kind of value that particularly those skilled manual jobs that we often associate with manufacturing um, and you, you, 
didn't have to have a high level of cognitive ability to do those jobs well. You may have had a high level of cognitive ability, but you didn't have to use it in your job. What you did need to do those jobs well was a lot of experience. And that gave those kinds of jobs, you know, you, you, you know, you really only learned to do it well after doing it for two, three, four, five years. And you were then of much greater value to your employer. And you were protected too. somebody couldn't just walk in off the street with a double first from Cambridge and say, well, I'll do that job. Um, because you, you, you could do it because you had, you know, you had the experience of doing it day in, day out for, for many years. And those kinds of jobs, I think, have, and, and what we've seen through the expansion, but partly because of technical change and reflected in the changes to our educational priorities, the huge expansion of higher education means also a huge expansion in, in the centrality of cognitive ability in our culture and our societies. And the, the way in which cognitive ability has become the kind of gold standard of human valuation, you might say, in the last couple of generations, I think has left many people feeling rather bereft, um, however clever they are. And, and remember, you know, half the population are always by definition in the lower, in the bottom half of the cognitive ability spectrum. Um, and we've, you know, other attributes, you know, moral standing, character experience, you know, these kinds of you just have to list them, and they do sound a little bit Victorian. They, uh, they, 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 they do, yeah. I mean, I, I wonder, listening to you there, do you see yourself, I mean, I'm interested, I won't be able to be in Glenty's tomorrow, but the, the panel is there to discuss the challenge posed by populism to the to the existing po- political order, and I wonder whether, in a way, in your writing about the UK, you see yourself in a, analogous to somebody like... J.D. Vance in the United States, whose hillbilly elegy has been read as a, as a kind of a, as a, as a message to the uh, to the anywheres from the somewheres about what's going on there. Is, is your role somewhat similar? Well, I mean, I come from a, a much more privileged background than him. I mean, I come from an upper middle class background. I went to public school and uh, Russell Group University and so on. So I can't claim to be a hillbilly, <laughs> a British hillbilly. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I suppose so. I mean, I, I'm I'm. I'm very much on the, I mean, if you read the book, you'll see, I mean, I, I'm I'm not blaming the anywheres exactly. I mean, I'm saying, you know, both of these worldviews are, are decent and legitimate. And I'm, I'm, my own background is very much a kind of liberal anywhere. But um, although, think, although it would be fair to say, that you're, sorry, just to fair that your 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 critique is yeah. is aimed first of all at the anywheres of whom you absolutely say yeah. yourself. You know, you, I think you take some delight. I think uh, rightly so in being a bit of an apostate and kind of you know yeah, tweet, tweaking yeah, their yeah. noses a bit. That that yeah. that they're your prime audience in a way. They're the ones you're saying, listen, guys, you need to start understanding yeah, the way the world is now. Exactly. I mean, these you know, I think we should take Brexit and Trump as kind of uh, as, as warnings. I mean, you know that. Um, you know that this is this is just you know, an, an attempt to kind of to, to rebalance, um, and it should be respected. And you won't like everything about it, but but anywheres need to become more emotionally intelligent about this. And I, I mean, I thought I was horrified by some of the reactions to the Brexit vote from people in my email chains. You know, I had left wing professors basically saying, "Why did we give these people the vote?" Um, and um, there was a, there was a there was an awful sort of dismissiveness, and I think that's I think it was particularly bad in in the UK. Uh, I think well both both Britain and America. I think the the anywheres have become 
kind of more autonomous and and more overpowerful than perhaps in 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 smaller countries like Ireland or you know, smaller European countries like Denmark, which have a kind of national intimacy, and it's 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 kind of harder for anywhere to escape. But they have escaped in they have escaped, and they become too powerful, um, both in Britain and America. And and and, but it it will need an act of sort of self, um, you know, self control in some ways for this to get better. I mean, you know, if, if the task of politics is find, now finding a better settlement between anywheres in some ways, much of the initiative for it has to come from anywheres themselves, a, re- a recognition that, that, that things that they've been, they've been ruling in their own interests, thinking it's the national interest, and they have, have a more expansive view of what the national interest is. It's, it strikes me listening to you that the, there's a potential irony here, which is that what you're describing was to some extent, it seems to me, what Theresa May and her uh, her now expelled advisers were attempting to do in their disastrous electoral campaign in, in June in that they were trying to find a new way of phrasing traditional British conservatism, which appealed to the skilled working class and to some of the people who'd been left out by Cameron and probably by Blair before him as well. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think there's any irony about it at all. I mean, I, I, I know Nick Timothy a bit, and I think, you know, he was quite deliberately trying to create, he wouldn't necessarily have used my language, but he was, def- he was certainly trying to make the Conservative Party more more working class friendly. And indeed, he succeeded in that. Uh, the um, the working class, the Conservative working class vote went from 32% to 44% amongst so-called C2DEs in the last election. And they uh, they didn't quite sweep the board in the way that they hoped in parts of the north and the midlands, but they won seats like Mansfield and Stoke South, and 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 they actually did very well, precisely trying to uh, appeal to um, the the slightly more socially conservative um, uh, intuitions of more rooted people um, who who don't want their communities changed rapidly by high levels of immigration, who do still believe in national social contracts and the importance of national sovereignty in relation to uh, the European Union, say. They think those things matter. Um, The Conservatives have also... What you've seen in recent years, interestingly enough, is a convergence between classes and value groups on on the socioeconomic issues. I mean, there isn't actually... I mean, Corbyn's a bit of an outlier, it's true. I mean, uh, you know, he's a, bit, he's a bit of a kind of 1970s leftist in economics. But actually, kind of mainstream Labour and mainstream Tory now are much closer than they would have been, certainly in the, in the 1980s and the 1990s. And the divergence has been in these, in these socio-cultural areas. And, and I think, you know, it's, it, it, there's, a, there's an opportunity for any party um, to, to try and create, uh, you know, a, a new settlement. I mean, it, it's, it's both the kind of wise thing to do politically and also, but it's also the um, successful thing to do politically is to try and get a critical mass of both of these groups. I mean, Tony Blair perhaps was the last person to achieve that in, in the, in the mid late nineties. And, you know, some, you know, some of his slogans then were deliberately trying to kind of combine the two sort of sets of intuitions you know tough on crime tough on the causes of crime you know was a was a a very kind of anywhere somewhere um way way of looking at it and where where does english as opposed to british nationalism fit into all this as we kind of gaze at all this stuff from across the irish sea and this 
rough shambling beast seeking to be born, which is English nationalism, which is something which kind of was submerged sometime around the invention of the British Empire in the early 18th century, seems to be trying to reassert itself, sometimes in in perfectly reasonable ways and sometimes in in more ugly ways. Should we be concerned about that or should we just accept that 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 kind of nationalism is is a natural phenomenon? I, I think the latter, absolutely. I think, yeah, I mean, if anything, we haven't had enough normal kind of English nationalism. Um, and it is now, I mean, it, the Brexit vote was, I, I would say it was a, it was kind of won by the English provinces. It was English provincialism um, that, 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 that tilted the vote. Um, and no, I mean, I, I you know, it's, it's, it's clear, you know, if you come from one of the smaller countries around England, um, whether it's Ireland, Scotland, Wales, even Wales, of course, voted for Brexit. Um, you know, there are there are obviously justified historical anxieties about, you know, England is the big beast after all in 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 this bed, um, and um, when when England sort of shifts, um, you know, it can unwittingly squash other people. And the English obviously have to be aware of that. But equally, um, I think, you know, I, th- I think it's very easy to be rather unfair on, on England and the English and sort of assume that they have to go on forever suppressing any sense of national identity that they might have. I mean, it's sort of, you know, reading between the lines, you know, what a lot of complaints coming from Scotland and indeed Ireland are. It's saying, no, sorry, you're not allowed to be nationalists in the way that we are. I mean, but partly because you're just too damn big. Is, um, is there a certain kind of a, a parallel there at all between uh, in the in the American presidential election last year? There was a kind of there was the left was quite triumphant about what was seen as a process of the emergence of a new kind of a rainbow nation, a coalition in which, you know, white Americans will become a minority in the next 20 or 25 years if demographic trends continue and that there would be a a successful coalition uh, of liberals and left leaning people and people who are currently minorities. And and that in a way, Trump's victory was a backlash against against that prospect. Yes, I mean, Eric in other Cam- words, the rise of a white identity was a direct backlash against the uh, the rise on the left of identity politics. I suppose. Um, yes, I don't think it's quite analogous here. I mean, I think there was an element of that, but don't. I mean, the, but the white population. I mean, you know, people of kind of white European background are now um, a minority in large parts of the United States, and I mean, overall, I think um, white Americans are what sixty percent of the population. Um, it's. I mean, we're, we're moving in sort of roughly the same direction. I, I mean, I think. It, I mean, I think it would be very unfair to look at the English in that light. I mean, I think you know, after all, the huge proportion of um, non-white immigration into the United Kingdom has gone to England. Um, uh, much less in Scotland, much less in Wales, and much much less in Northern Ireland. Mm. Um, so you know, and it's the English who have lived with and married and had children with the 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 non-white minorities on a on a on a pretty large scale so do you see a parallel at all between i think of that photograph of nigel farage and donald trump and the gold elevator do you see a parallel at all between those two political movements uh, oh yes definitely i mean uh, this is you know both of them are in revolt against aspects of liberal modernity um and they have um, you know, I mean, obviously Nigel Farage led a relatively small 
party in the United Kingdom. I mean, he was, you know, uh, he reached a high point of 12.4% of the vote, I think, in 2015. But, but he, he, uh, having said that, he was also uh, probably the UKIP has turned out to be the most successful populist party in the whole of Europe by quite a long chalk. I mean, no, no other populist party in Europe has really achieved anything. Mm. I mean, it's, except for amassing votes and possibly having some influence on the on the political discourse. But um, UKIP has been easily the most successful. And yes, I mean, uh, and I think rapid cultural change, of which rapid ethnic change is a part, you know, is it was definitely part of Trump's appeal, and is definitely uh, and is definitely a legitimate anxiety that that UKIP expressed that the Conservative Party. Um, you know, is is trying to is trying to give voice to is, is trying to respond to by saying, well, actually, yes. I mean, it, you know, society has been changing too fast, and therefore we want to. We don't want to become a closed society. We don't want to stop immigration. We want to bring it down to more moderate levels. And this is a it's a it's a very difficult thing to do, but it's a perfectly legitimate aim, and it's something that Labour, dominated as it is by kind of liberal graduates, finds much more uncomfortable. It's, it's much more difficult for them to deal with it, which is why. Indeed, the centre-left parties throughout Europe have struggled with these issues of kind of national identity and group attachment because they don't really feel them. Uh, you know, the, the 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 issue for the right is how is is how to sort is is how to control these feelings and make sure that they're compatible with us. I think they completely are compatible with you know the modern cultural equalities, modern um, you know human rights legislation, equality legislation. I mean, I think the two are completely compatible, um, but I think. It's it's harder it's harder for the left to come up with it, you know the, the, the last time the left had to reinvent itself it was essentially a, still a socio-economic story when we had kind of Clinton and Blair invent, reinventing the left it was essentially about becoming more mainstream in their economic thinking becoming less hostile to to the middle class becoming less ta you know less reliant on tax and spend um, that that was easy. <laughs> compared to the, the task for the centre-left now. Which so, what, is, so what would you say to those people on the left and the centre-left who kind of who express horror at this phenomenon of right of, of centre-right or further right populism, which we've seen across Europe and, and in the United States, and point to what they see as racism, sexism, homophobia, and all kinds of other egregious ills? Well, I'd say they are wrong in most cases. I, I don't think, and, and I think you know, my the numbers, the, the value surveys suggest that that there are pockets of people who um, who are xenophobes and um, a, 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 and authoritarians. It's a pretty small number, probably five to seven percent. I think the proportion of people that say you have to be white to be truly British or English is eight nine percent. I mean, it's really it's 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 down in single figures now. Uh, you've seen a huge liberalisation, which is including, um, including somewheres, a huge liberalisation of views. And um, I think it's simply wrong for, uh, for you know, highly educated liberals to kind of look down their nose and see ordinary people as, as xenophobes. Um, but ordinary people often feel that is, that is how they are being looked at and, um, and and they respond accordingly I mean they're, they're, you know obviously people don't like that but would you uh, agree that there is a there is a danger I mean we see it more in more extreme fashion in France and some other European countries of parties which do have you know clear authoritarian if not fascist tendencies you know gaining significant popular support Yes, there, there is, um, and um, but I mean I, I I don't think you know the far right in Britain is is, is extremely weak. 
I don't think that I don't think this is a particularly relevant danger. I think, if anything, we focus too much on it. Um, it, it, it. I mean, the BNP did get nearly a million votes back in the European elections of 2009. I think there was a there was a serious issue then, but the whole the whole thing is, uh, has blown apart, and, it, and and probably quite a few of their voters moved to vote for UKIP. But these are legitimate democratic responses to, you know, to to to, to mainstream issues to do with national social contracts, to do with immigration, to do with things like family policy that have, um, that have simply been ignored by mainstream politics or, or mainstream politics has, has tried to deal, say, with, with immigration but has failed. Um, and it's failed partly in, in the case of the UK because of um, our membership of the European Union um, because it was impossible, you know, when you know, Britain by the late 80s, early 90s, you know, had, had absorbed the great post-colonial phase of immigration and, uh, you know, had come to terms with being a, a multi-ethnic society, multi-racial society. But Parliament was still able to respond to anxieties about, 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 about ethnic and cultural change by slowing the numbers. And it did. In the late 80s, early 90s, uh, we had negative net immigration and then whizzed up again in 97 when Blair came in. Uh, after 2004, um, we, you know, that when you know, many, many more people from Central and Eastern Europe came than we'd been expecting, um, uh, the Parliament couldn't do anything about it. And I think it kind of revealed to people for the first time that something is kind of existential about, you know, do, you know, do countries belong to their citizens or not? But, <laughs> you know, and if they do, then you should be able to control. But, 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 and unfortunately, finally, this is to be my last question, Chip, because the, the, the clock is ticking on us there. One of the things that strikes me about listening to that from you is that that became a huge issue which led to Brexit in the United Kingdom. We had exactly the same thing here in Ireland without having had a previous history of, of, of immigration. And it really isn't on the political agenda at all here. Do you have any idea why that might be? Well, I mean, you, you, the, there are all sorts of reasons why membership of the European Union is more beneficial to you in Ireland, um, partly economically, um, partly psychologically. You know, a small country that's lived in the shadow of a much bigger neighbour, you know, for, for all of history uh, and, and suffered from it, um, you know, clearly has an interest in belonging to a bigger group which um, allows Ireland to escape the, the domination of the United Kingdom to some extent. I mean, sure. it's, um, uh, so, you know, you have that enormous sort of psychological and political um, motivation for staying in the European Union. I, so, I, I suppose what I'm getting at, and I, I accept that, but is that yeah. there is something in particular about, uh, about British nationalism. And while I take your point about the kind of the, the sort of unanimity of discourse in a certain kind of educated urban elites in, in, in the United Kingdom, there's also very strong media discourse uh, nationalist anti-EU discourse, which saw the EU as the source of all of all ills, and kind of ran that message home for quite a long time. Yeah, um, the Mail and the Express and the Sun and so on. Yeah, that's true, and and it acted. You know, you might say it acted as a kind of safety valve um, for, for those sorts of feelings. But actually, it's better to have the, the, those feelings directly expressed in politics. I mean, I think you know we should have. If we had PR, you know, UKIP would have had 50 seats in Parliament or something, which which might have been a good thing. Um, but no, and I think it is interesting. And you, and you tell me why you think um, there hasn't been. I mean, that there hasn't been the same. Um, I, 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 I would stick up for England here. I mean, I think 
you know, it, it's a kind of liberal, you, you get this liberal elision. People say such and such, this party, this individual is, is against, um, against immigrants. I mean, invariably, that isn't the case. They are against large scale immigration. They aren't against particular immigrants. And I think that would be true of most English people, just as it's true of most Irish people. Um, but the, the scale of the change coming on top of the you know, already substantial minority populations that were already here means that, you know, there are, you know, London is a majority minority city. Birmingham is now a majority minority city. Slough is, Luton is, Leicester is. You know, we are seeing really big changes that, that and, and that may be true of certain parts of certain towns in Ireland. Um, but I think you probably haven't, you, you've not experienced it on the same scale yet. There may be also something about the fact that, you know, Irish people are more sympathetic um, to the idea, um, you know, having had a long experience of emigration. Um, and it may also be that actually your anywheres uh, are so dominating this debate that they don't allow the anxieties that many Irish people feel about these changes um, in, into the public domain in the way that we do. I, th I think many of those things and a couple more if we had time may also be true. I should just say for anybody who's interested in this subject, I mean, David's book is an absolute must read. David, thank you very much indeed for joining us mm. today. Thank you. The Road to Somewhere, The Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics by David Goodhart is published by C. Hurst and Company. That's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. And remember, you can mail me at hlenahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks for listening. 